Welcome to the Vision Church Podcast. We are so excited to have you with us. We hope this message will encourage and inspire you to walk out your God-given vision. Now here's today's message. So we're going to do something a little different uh, this morning. Uh, What I wanted to do was I wanted to talk about four significant events that happened during what we call the Easter season. From when Jesus died on the cross and then when he was resurrected, there were many significant things that happened. I mean, there was a whole bunch. But you guys are going to get a little lower than me. You're the king. What's the You're deal? Up there. Yeah. I feel all alone up here. I'll the stay. air's kind of thin. I'll stay, I'll stay up here. <laughs> See, it's, it's, it's nice. It's but okay. there, and I don't, know, I don't know if you've ever been on our website. If you, go, if you visit our website, visionnwa.com, uh, under media, there's a tab for, uh, for a broadcast that we do called The Conversation. Because we would get in our kitchen and we would begin to talk about some of the things like we're going to talk to you about uh, today. And, and we would have these conversations. So this may be new and special for you, but this is normal for us. This is what we do all the time. So we're going get, to get a little peek about what goes on at the Johnson household. And so those, those conversations, though, I mean, would go so deep and all of a sudden the anointing would flow. It's like the Holy Spirit would join us in the conversation. And when we got done, we were like, man, I wish we would have recorded that. You know, because that was really good. And so, so now we do. So that's, if you go to our website, you can listen to a thing that we call The Conversation. We've also, uh, last broadcast that we did, we had Dana and Chris uh, Schwedahl on the, on the program with us. And so we talked about pro-life and we talked about um, misconceptions about uh, the pro-life movement, misconceptions about Planned Parenthood. And so that was a great broadcast. She has a wonderful ministry that she directs, uh, helping young ladies with that choice and with that decision. And, and then we along with the conversation on the website, we also have every message on Sunday morning. So we put that on there. So if you're ever in children's ministry and you're out of the service during the message, just just click on there and you can listen to the message. And if you have friends and neighbors and loved ones who weren't here yet, because maybe they're out of state, um, just tell them, hey, listen to this. It'll just really do you some good and feed you good. So, four significant events. Now, this is not all of them, like I said, but I just wanted to cover four this morning. And the first one I wanted to talk about is, is interesting, because when Jesus died on the cross, when the lightning struck and, you know, and, and he said, it is finished, and he dropped his head, there were some significant things that happened. The ground began to shake, there, an earthquake began to happen, but there was also an, another event that happened. And Becca, what was that? It was the veil in the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Do you guys remember that? And a lot of people don't really know the significance of that. Do you want me to jump right in? Yeah, jump right in. Here we go. go. I will jump right in. And so in Matthew 27, verse 50 through 51, it says, And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Now I'm going to explain to you guys about the temple, what that means. And so the temple was basically where people went to meet with God. Now we can pray. Now we can have one-on-one conversations with God. Back then they could not. There was one person that could meet with God on behalf of people, on behalf of us, and that was the high priest. But the thing was, God was so holy that he couldn't even see him more than once a year. There was literally one day a year where the priest was Um, being prepared all year long. He could only go like once in his lifetime. It was rare that that the same priest got to go again, but they would go in the Holy of Holies, which was a room behind the veil in the temple in Jerusalem. And that room had no windows. It had no, I mean, the only in and out was that veil. And it was a very thick veil, but he would go in and burn sacrifices on behalf of the sins of the people and on behalf of himself. And that was the way to make atonement between us and God and make sure that we were good with God. Because with sin, we cannot really um, approach God with boldness. We can't approach him with um, the right to come and ask him for things because we are fallen beings. We're fallen people. So I loved doing research on this. I learned so much. Um, God could not have relationship with people. Under the old covenant, the high priest was the one that was the mediator, 
And then under the new covenant, Jesus was the one that was the mediator. He was our now high priest. And there's no other high priest that can take that place anymore. In Isaiah 59, verses 1 through 2, it says, But your iniquities have separated you from God. Your sins have hidden his face from you. So it's literally our sins. And did you know, I heard my dad um, telling this, that I'm sure I've read it in the Bible. I just hadn't heard a preacher tell me before. But even having a doubtful thought, even having a fearful thought, anything like that is a sin. So even if you haven't committed murder, you haven't done those crazy sins that we think about, just thinking it to God is a sin. And so it's like, how in the world, how possibly, you know, are we ever able to approach God with boldness? Well, Jesus changed that. Okay, here's some details on the veil and what that looked like. Solomon's temple was 30 cubits high. And then later on, King Herod had it raised to 40 cubits high. And so no one really knows what a cubit is, but it's about 60 feet high. This room, I was asking my dad last night, I texted him like, it was probably one in the morning. <laughs> he texted me back this morning. But I was like, how high is the ceiling in the Apollo? And he was guesstimating like 30 feet. So 60 feet high, double this, that's how high that veil was in the temple in Jerusalem. Now on the thickness of it, an early Jewish tradition says that the veil was about four inches thick. The Bible does not confirm that measurement, but it does mention in the Bible that it was a very thick veil. I wanted to do a little object wow. lesson, so I text some of my people this morning, but I want Spencer to come up here, Aaron to come up here, and Austin to come up here. I've got something for All you. All right, guys. Yeah. Come you on. three just stand right here facing the crowd. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> These are phone books, and they are not four inches thick, but the veil would have been four inches. That's about two to me. That looks like two inches. Okay, it also says in the Bible that the veil was torn from top to bottom. It was not from side to side. It wasn't from bottom to top. It was from 60 feet high to the bottom. So there's no possible way a man could have ran in and ripped it in that moment, right? Okay, so I want you guys to see if you can tear that phone book from top to bottom. Come on. Hey, let's cheer them on, guys. Yeah. Come on. Come on, Austin. You carry Come those chairs up and downstairs. Spencer, you play baseball. Aaron, you're a hard worker. Come on, Get guys. It. Come on. I feel like the power team up here. Come on. Come on, guys. Oh. If you bring 10 friends. Come on. Hey, free, free, free phone book and app. Free lunch if you can tear man, it in half. Man, man. Aren't you glad this is not a New York oh. City phone book? There you go. All right, all right, Arkansas. all right. I think we're good there. <laughs> Man. Come on, guys. <laughs> great, great job. You can be seated. Thank you, guys. <laughs> so <my> awesome. <laughs> wow. So. There's know, still right? time to join the power team. Still can. So. That can still be a fun? thing for you. So for a little bit of a visual, there's no possible way except for Jesus tearing that veil from top to bottom. Four inches thick. Those phone books were two inches. Wow. Not the, and those are buff guys. Like, I'm not sure. Yeah. They could probably do it if they have more time. These are the strong But guys. I think how cool that was. So let's read that top scripture again. Matthew 27, 50 to 51. And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. What does this mean to us as Christians that the veil was torn? Above all, the tearing of the veil meant that there was now an openness. There was now an open wall for each of us to enter the Holy of Holies. Yeah. For each of us to have a personal relationship with God that we did not have to go through a high priest. That there was no possible way for that many animal sacrifices to cover us, to be the atonement for our sin. But Jesus was torn on the cross. He tore the veil, and he said, hey, you've got free reign. You Thank can you, walk Lord. in with boldness into the kingdom of God. Yeah. 
and then in Acts 7. Because sin, sin separates us from God. Yes. So that's what happened when Adam sinned in the garden. Mm -hmm. Man became separated from God. Yes. And so we weren't able to have that close relationship. Exactly. And so there was a barrier. And that's yes. what that represented was exactly. the barrier mm -hmm. that separated us. Yeah. And it was like that old covenant under Moses of they needed laws. They needed to figure out a way to communicate with God. Yeah. And then meanwhile, in the background, God was working on sending Jesus. And then he made the new covenant. Yeah. Okay. Wow. Hebrews good. 10, 19 through 20 says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, opened for us through the curtain that is his body. Thank you. He's our superior high priest now. We can now enter the holy of holies through him. He removed the barrier. We now have access to God. So I hope you guys got something out of that. I got yeah. a fresh revelation out of it. I love the history and details because it makes sense. Because you just think, oh, a little veil was torn. That's awesome. And you picture, like, a s one you can see through. Nah. <laughs> no, historically, it was, it was God. You know, I don't know about you guys, but I'm, I'm thankful that Jesus was a finisher. You know what a finisher is, right? Somebody that accomplishes something. They see something through all the way from beginning to the end. I, I met this guy named Tim in Sacramento, California, and I, w I remember I w when we were traveling with the 99, and we were doing ministry there, when I met him, I said, Tim, tell me something unique about yourself. Tell me something interesting. And he goes, well, I rode my bike from Sacramento to San Francisco one time. And I said, I, w I said, you did? I mean, like a 10 speed? He said, yeah. I said, well, when did, did you plan it out? I mean, how did you decide to do that? And he goes, no, I just got on my bike one morning and said, you know what, I'm going to ride to S San Francisco. And so, so he gets out on the highway. I said, now, wait a minute, I've driven that. It's about a couple-hour drive. And somewhere along Vacaville, once you get past Vacaville, California, there's all these mountain ranges. And I said, how did you do when you got past Vacaville? And he goes, oh, I wanted to quit so many times. He said, well, when I was coming up through those mountains, I said, but did you? And he said, no, I never did. I said, how long did it take you? And I forget. I mean, it was hours, uh -huh. about eight hours, something like that. And, and I said, well, what did you do when you got to San Francisco? He said, I called my brother and said, come and get me. I'm in Sacramento, <laughs> San Francisco. <laughs> but I said, okay, well. But the thing that got my attention was I looked at Tim and I went, man, this guy's a finisher. This is somebody that's going to see something through from point A to point B, you know, and, and aren't you glad because Jesus could have given up in the garden, but he didn't. He could have given up on the cross, but he didn't. You remember he was standing in front of Pilate and he said, you know, Pilate was like, why don't your people fight for you? And he was like, listen, I could call on my heavenly father and he would send legions of angels come and they would fight for me instantaneously. So he could have called. He could have said, hey, I, I'm giving this thing up, but he didn't. He saw it past the cross. He saw it even into hell, and he saw it beyond hell because he was raised from the dead. And let me tell you, I don't know about you guys. I mean, I'm a pictorial guy. I like to see things. Uh, and when I think about Jesus coming across the threshold into heaven, the, the lamb that was slain, and he is going to pour out his blood on the altar, the blood that he shed for you and I. Why is that important? Because like Becca said, in, in that day and time, they would pour the blood of a dead animal on the altar, and all it did was it covered sin. It didn't remit sin. It didn't get rid of it. But Jesus' blood expunged sin. It remitted it. It got rid of it as if it never happened. Think about that. And so, and so I have this pictorial, this vision in my mind that here's Jesus coming across the threshold of heaven. Here's all, and, the, and the people are lined in the, house, in the buildings and everything on the street. And, and nobody's making a noise until he steps across the threshold. And then all of heaven comes unglued. Confetti flying everywhere. I mean, Jesus walking down Main Street to the altar to pour his blood out on the altar. Why is that significant for you and I? Because there is no forgiveness of sin without that blood. The life is in the blood. Man, isn't that powerful?
That was so good, Becca. I really appreciate it. I want to talk to you personally about number two. Number two is this. The significant event that we want to talk about was when Jesus defeated sin, hell, and the grave. Sin, hell, and the grave. Okay, so what's significant about that? Well, I'm going to talk about some battles that took place, okay? And some of them, some of the battles are included in the battles that I talk about. So I'm not covering, I'm not saying this is a full comprehensive list of battles or things that Jesus went through. But I want to talk about some in particular. The first one was the cross. The battle of the cross. Now think about this. This was the purpose of the cross. First Peter 3.18. You don't mind if I stand up, do you? I just do better if I stand. First Peter 3.18 says, For Christ also suffered once the righteous for the unrighteous that he might bring to us God, being put to death for the, uh, in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. See, when you pray and you receive Jesus, when you make him Lord of your life, your spirit man comes alive. It's something that you can't get any other way. You know, there's a satisfaction that comes. There's so many people in the world that are trying to satisfy themse themselves with things. I had a friend in, uh, in Louisville, not Louisville, was it Louisville? Um, no, Tulsa, Oklahoma. We were, we were working on staff at a church, and I had this guy that, uh, that Nicole and I did marriage counseling with him, and many of the other staff people did marriage counseling with him. And they just, he just decided to call it quits. Well, as soon as they got a divorce, he bought a brand new Mustang. I mean, a GT, had the racing stripe down it, you know. And I'm walking into church one day. I just got out of my car. I'm walking into the church building, and he comes sliding in, literally, in his new car. I mean, whoo, slides up to me right here. And I'm like, and I look at him, and I recognize who it is. And so I walk over to him, and he goes, man, check out my new ride. And I got to tell you, it was pretty sweet. I mean, you know, I can't lie. It was a cool car. But I just looked at him because we'd had this conversation, and I knew financially his wife wouldn't let him get the car because financially it just it wasn't good stewardship, you know. And, but I knew what had happened. Now that he'd gotten a divorce, he was trying to fill a hole. And I said, well, let me ask you a question, man. What are you going to do two weeks from now when this wears off? When you get your first ding in this car? Where are you going to be at then? And he just looked at me. Man. So, the sting of death is sin. Look at Romans chapter 6. I want to read to you verse 23. It says, for the wages of sin is death, but... The gift of God is eternal life. Eternal life. Now, there's a misconception that when people make Jesus Lord of their life, that all of a sudden they're perfect. They can't make a mistake. Is that true? How many of you Christians, you've made Jesus Lord of your life, feel like, yeah, oh man, when I got saved, I never made a mistake again. I see any hands? All right, put that hand down because you're a liar. <laughs> no, I'm sorry. That was hard. <laughs> but... You know, it's kind of true, <laughs> you know. Because, why? Because the Bible says that all have sinned. How many are in the category of all? That's me. I'm in all. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. This is why we needed Jesus to come. And here's the cool thing about God. is uh, I, I don't know how many of you have ridden horses. I'm, I'm betting probably every person in here has read, ridden a horse at some point. Well, I got thrown off a lot when I, when I was a little guy. And in fact, I broke both my arms at the same time once. Uh, getting thrown off it was a crazy horse accident but I learned that when you get up when you get thrown off what do you do you just kind of go man I wanted to ride the horse I guess I'm not going to get to ride the horse anymore what do you do, do you, is that what you do no you go and you get back on the horse and you hold the reins tighter and you learn what I didn't know how to you know turn its head right to left when they take off running and you can't stop them you know, I didn't know that. So I learned that, though, the hard way. So it was good. It was good. Thank God. But let me, let me say this to you. Sin has no sting when you make Jesus the Lord of your life. Why? Because of Galatians 2.20. Let me read to you what Galatians 2.20 says, because you'll appreciate this. Listen to what it says. It says, I've been crucified with Christ, so it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. So Jesus comes and he lives on the inside of you. 
so it's no longer me living. Okay, well, let me give you an example of that. Have you ever seen uh, someone in armor? I'm talking about the full armor. Face mask, has little slits for the eyes, sometimes, you know, like the kind that they do the jousting with. You know, if you see the person in the armor, you can tell it's a man. Or, you know, it's a person in there. And you can tell that there's life in it. Because somebody's inside the armor. Can you tell who it is? No. This is the same way with Jesus. And the Bible says to put on the full armor of God, the helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness, your loins girded about with the belt of truth, your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace, right? And you take your shield of faith, you have your sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Man, there's Bible students in here. You got your sword of the spirit, and what's happened? You're outfitted. You've got the whole armor of God on, on and so the enemy, the devil, Satan, he can't tell who's inside of that thing. So when you pull out your sword of the spirit and you speak the word of God over situations instead of complaining about them, instead of calling everybody in town and saying, man, did you hear what happened? Man, how about going, how about speaking the word of God over that situation? You know, well, wait a minute, Phil, are you saying that I can speak a scripture over my car, over my lawnmower, over my business deal? Absolutely I am. And you know what? I'm not saying you not only can, you should. Why? Because God's words are life, and life changes things. I've shared this story before, but I remember, Becca, when you were in the fifth grade, and you came out of the fourth grade, and, and the work level load changes when you go from fourth to fifth. It gets harder. It steps you up, you know? And she was, you were having difficulty. And I was putting you to bed one night, and you said, Dad, I, you know, you, I could tell something was going on. And you said, Dad, I'm really struggling with my schoolwork because the work's a lot harder than it used to be. And, and while she was telling me about how hard the work was, the Holy Spirit just began to deal with my heart. Speak over her what you want to see. And I thought, oh, okay. And so, I said, so after you got done telling me, I said, Becca, you get every problem. You're a problem solver. In fact, schoolwork comes easy to you. You understand every concept, every principle, you know, it, it comes easy to you. You are a, are a woman of great understanding. And, man, I just spoke what I wanted to see. And do you know what? Man, things begin to turn. All of a sudden, that, those words begin to produce in her. Now, what if I would have said, man, she, my daughter's got a problem with schoolwork. We need to go get some special ed. We need to go get some counseling. We need to probably go to summer school. You know what? I mean, you have options here, right? You can speak what is, or you can choose to begin to speak life into your situation. Well, Phil, I didn't hear you quote a scripture. No, but I did speak what I wanted, and I'm a creative being. <laughs> and you know what? It changed the situation. She, be, she turned into a good student, didn't you, sis? Second battle. I'm not going to look back. And uh, <laughs> she's, It was still, I mean, there's still challenges out in front, but you overcome challenges. You can overcome them, can't you? So the second battle was hell. Jesus went through the cross, so now he's faced with hell. What happened when Jesus died on the cross? When he said it was finished, when he dropped his head? What happened to his spirit? Because do you know the spirit man lives on after you die? Because your body is like a glove. When you take your hand out of the glove, the glove doesn't move anymore, does it? Why? Because the life has gone out of it. It needs the life of your hand in it. Same way with your body. Your spirit lives forever. And in fact, I've heard documented uh, people who have had afterlife experiences, died clinically, were raised back to life. They could see, they could feel, they could touch, they could experience. Some of them didn't even know that they had died. And they would try to talk to people and, and couldn't get conversations in return. I'm getting a little off track, but let me read to you Ephesians chapter 4. Here's the purpose of Jesus going to hell, is that he went to take back what the enemy stole. How do you take back something that somebody stole from you? You have to go and get it, don't you? So you have to go to that location. So Jesus went to hell. Here's Ephesians to do that for us. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 9 and 10 says this. Now this, he ascended. What does that mean except that he first 
descended into the lower parts of the earth. And there's all kinds of scriptures that talk about hell being in the center of the earth. That that's the location. All right, he descended to the lower parts of the earth. He who descended is also the one who ascended above all the heavens that he might fill all things. Now, Revelation 1.18 says this. I am he, this is Jesus talking, I am he who lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore, amen. And I had the keys of hell, he uses the word Hades, of hell and of death. He has the keys. So how did he get the keys? He went, he went and got them, didn't he? He went and got the keys and he took them back. The keys of hell and death, amen. First, that's why this scripture is so important. 1 Corinthians 15.55 says, Death, where is your sting? Grave, where? There's no sting in death. Man, why? Because Jesus took it all back. What about this? You remember Jesus, he was talking to Peter, and he said this to Peter. He said, Peter, I'm going to call you Peter. His name before was what? Simon, right? That's why we sometimes call him Simon Peter. And he said, no, I'm going to call you Peter. And upon this rock, I'm going to build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Well, I don't know about you, but I've never seen gates prevail against anything unless something was trying to go through it. I've seen gates prevail that way, but gates are stationary. They're defensive. You, you put a gate up because you want to either keep something in or keep something out, right? So hell, the gates of hell, that, that statement has always been to me like, huh, wait a minute, gates are stationary. I mean, they're not offensive. So it's not that the gates of hell are coming this way. It's that Jesus broke through the gates of hell. Why? Because he had to take back what belonged to you and I. So that means that the gates of hell can't prevail against the dream, the vision that God has put in your heart, in your life, the things that he has for you. Man, he has already burst through those gates and taken back everything that you need in your life. Man, aren't you thankful? Aren't you thankful? Oh, I am. Man, thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Man. And then the last one was the grave. John chapter 20, verse 1. When the women came, you remember Jesus had died on the cross and they had put him in the grave. And so in the book of Matthew, in Matthew chapter 28, it was really cool. There was thunder, the sound of thunder, and this angel, one angel, rolled the stone away that took three Roman soldiers, and then he jumped up and he sat on top of it. Now let me ask you a question. Jesus, later, we read about Jesus appearing in places, walking through walls, you know, and all of a sudden appearing in places. Why does he need a stone move? It wasn't for him. It was for Mary and, and the women and John and Peter when they came so that they could see the evidence that Jesus had raised from the dead. Now this is so, so important because this is all of Christianity wrapped into one thing. Because without the resurrection, there is no Christianity. There is no salvation. That is the core belief of why we're here today. You know, I, I don't know if you've heard of Lee Strobel. Lee Strobel, is a, he was a professing atheist, and he was an antagonistic atheist. He wasn't just your average atheist. And he was a reporter for the Chicago Tribune. And he decided he was going to prove Christianity wrong because his wife had had an encounter with God and she'd received, made him Lord of her life. And this, he was like, wait a minute, that was not my plans for our marriage. You do not have the right to go and make Jesus Lord of your life. And he said, so I figured I'm going to go and I'm going to prove this, he called it a cult, wrong. And he said, I thought it would take a long weekend. Well, he researched for a year and nine months. And he could not disprove the resurrection. Listen to what he said. I've got his quote right here, which I have to get back to. I pushed something. All right. Here's this quote. <clears throat> Listen to what he said. He made this statement. He said, in short, I didn't become a Christian because God promised 
I would uh, have an even happier life than I did as an atheist. He never promised any such thing. Rather, I became a Christian because the evidence was so compelling that Jesus really is the one and only Son of God who proved his divinity by rising from the dead. That meant following him was the most rational and logical step I could possibly take. Man, he believed it. He couldn't prove it wrong. Man, 1 first, first Corinthians 15, 17 says this. Paul echoes, he's echo, echoing what Lee said. Actually, actually, Lee's echoing what Paul said. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You don't have faith if Christ is not risen. Listen to what Pastor Adrian, Adrian Rogers said. He said, the resurrection is not merely important to historical Christian faith. Without it, there would be no Christianity at all. Again, without the resurrection, there would be no hope of salvation. Now, I, I, uh, you remember there, we used to have a slogan people would say sometimes, saved by the bell. I don't know if you remember that. We don't, I don't hear people use it really anymore. But I looked that statement up and kind of where it came from. It came from 18th century England. And what happened was in England, they were having difficult time burying people. They couldn't find a place to bury anybody. All the cemeteries were full. And so they got permission from the clergy to dig up the graves, and they would take the bones and turn them into the bone house so that they could reuse the bones. And, and then they would have an empty grave to be able to put somebody in there. Well, one out of every 25 graves that they dug up, they found scratch marks on the inside of the casket. And they thought, oh, dear God, we've been burying people alive. And so the clergy, when they told the clergy, the clergy said, okay, well, here's what I want you to do. You know, we'll wait several days for one thing, but then when you bury them, tie a string to the corpse, run it up through the, all the way up to the top and attach it to a bell so that if they begin to move, we'll hear the bell ring. And then they would assign people to stay up all night in these cemeteries and listen to the bell. Thus, we get the phrase, saved by the bell. All right, that kind of connects well, with my message. Free, but, but that was free, and if you know, free, came for anything, no you're not going to forget that story when you leave here today. <laughs> but listen, Jesus saved you. You were saved by the bell. Aren't you thankful? <laughs> Amen. All right, next one. Let's move on to number three. So number three, you know, one of the important things was when uh, Peter, and Peter had denied Jesus. And so he's dealing with that hurt, with that pain. So what was important about his life? So for those of you who maybe, are, um, maybe aren't fully aware of Peter and who he was, he was one of the disciples, one of the 12 disciples that traveled. Jesus actually had many more disciples than just 12. He actually had well over 70 that he sent out, but he had the core 12 that traveled with him personally um, and really saw the way that he moved and, and the way that he worked and the miracles that he performed. And one of probably his most well-known uh, was Peter. Peter wanted to be joined to death I will go with you and so like Peter's hardcore you know and so a lot of times whenever I read the Bible and I read about Peter I'm like mm, like this guy is you know he's gonna follow Jesus to the end of the line and everything he's gonna he's literally gonna succeed Jesus you know and Jesus is gonna pass it off to Peter you know that's how it's gonna be and everything um, noticed about Peter is that you know Peter was a very passionate pursuer of Jesus but there were many times that we read through the scriptures where his emotions really got the best of him. He pursued Jesus. He loved Jesus with all that he had. But a lot of times the decisions he made were not out of love, but just out of the way he was feeling in the moment. And we see this all throughout scripture. We see this mainly uh, in Matthew chapter 16 verses 22 and 23. This is a part where Jesus is literally, he's preparing his disciples. I love how Jesus, like, he's so loving in the fact to where he prepares them for his own death. You know, it's like he sits them all down. He's like, all right, guys, sit down and everything. And he's literally telling them, this is why I've come. I mean, they had, I don't know how much ahead of time to prepare for his death, but Jesus made sure that the, his death didn't catch them by surprise. That's just his heart. He loves them enough to share what, what, what God's actually doing. And so he sits the disciples down and he tells them, I'm going to be betrayed by the Son of Man, and I'm going to be crucified, and I will be killed, but on the third day I'm going to raise again. 
for Peter, the third day and raise again thing kind of just went over his head. He just heard, you're going to die? And so the first thing he says is it says that he pulls Jesus to the side in Matthew chapter 16. It says, Peter took him aside and objected to this. He said, heaven forbid, Lord. Jesus came from heaven. Don't you think? Like, he got this plan from heaven. So once again, this just confirms that Jesus is, or that Peter is speaking out of emotion. And so he says, he says, heaven forbid, Lord, this must never happen to you. But Jesus turned and said to Peter, get out of my way, Satan. Woo! He's dropping bars on Peter right now. Get out of my way, Satan. You are tempting me to sin. You aren't thinking the way God thinks, but the way humans think. And then we also see another portion over here in John chapter 18, verses 10 through 11. And this is when they're in the garden and the soldiers are coming to arrest Jesus. If you've heard the story many times, you know what happens. Peter gets very emotional and he takes a sword out. <laughs> when, swords, when swords are coming out of their sheaths, like bad, bad stuff's happening. You know, and so like Peter, he sees that they're taking Jesus. And Simon Peter had a sword and he drew it and attacked the chief priest's servant, and cut off the servant's right ear. Okay, so like he's just, no questions. I'm just kicking butt and taking names. Like that's what I'm doing. And that's the, the servant's name was Malchus. And Jesus told Peter, put your sword away. Shouldn't I drink the cup of suffering that my father has given me? So one of the things that we see a lot is once again that Peter was led by emotions. But probably, I think, whenever I think of Peter, there's probably one moment that stands out to him above all else. And it was when Jesus was being, uh, whenever Jesus was in the courtyard of the temple, and he's being questioned by the chief priests and everything. Because once again, the chief priests, they couldn't find a legitimate reason to actually kill Jesus. I mean, like, it's pretty hard to mess with perfection, you know. It's hard to find fault in something that's perfect. And that's exactly what the chief priests and scribes and elders and Pharisees were having with Jesus. They couldn't find a reason. But somehow they were able to wiggle in and get Jesus, and they brought him to the temple for questioning. Well, Peter, once again, he's like, this is my homeboy, Jesus, and I told him that I'd go with him wherever he goes. So let, you know, little be known, Peter follows Jesus to the temple. But everyone at that time knew the 12 that were following Jesus. So Peter knew that he had to disguise himself because if not, if they found him, he would probably end up being in the same position as Jesus. So we're already seeing flaws in Peter's in Peter's whole philosophy here because didn't he tell Jesus previously I'll go with you anywhere even to death but whenever he goes to the courtyard of the temple he disguises himself because he doesn't want to be recognized and so that really stood out to me but then he begins to get be questioned by people I mean you're you're you know your disguise can only go so far something tells me he had a pretty cheap disguise but people saw him and they're like hey you were one you were one of the ones that were traveling with Jesus and what did Peter say no no I wasn't I wasn't there. I wasn't with him. And then he goes on, moves on. He keeps playing his little character that he is, hoping people won't notice him. And then eventually somebody else sees him, and they point him out, and they're like, hey, I recognize you. I saw you with him. What does Peter say again? No, I don't know this man. I've never known this man. And then one more time, someone points him out, and Peter gets so frustrated to the point to where he curses and says, I don't know that man. And right at that moment, you know, the rooster crowed, and then the amount of shame I can imagine in that moment that Peter felt come over, his, come over his person. Because this is a man who literally looked Jesus in the eye and said, I will follow you wherever you go, even to death. But yet, in a moment of pressure, he allowed himself to deny that he even knew Jesus. And then that when shame just came over his body, what happens? We see there in the scriptures that Peter withdrew himself. And really, we don't see Peter for the rest of that story until the resurrection. And something that I see there is, is the enemy loves to work through shame. He loves to imprison us through shame. Peter wasn't actually in a physical prison, but he was in a prison mentally because he had denied Christ. And I was looking up, you know, Peter and his shame was so focused on who Jesus was, who he remembered of Jesus was. But he forgot who Jesus is. He forgot that in that moment, even on the cross, Jesus was still the healer. He was still the deliverer. He was still the son of God. That didn't change who Jesus was. But Peter allowed himself to forget who Jesus was. I can imagine in those moments when he was questioned by those people in the temple that all of the memories of seeing 5,000 people fed with five loaves and two fish 
went from his memory, and he even forgot that to the point to say, I've denied Christ. You see, the definition of shame is a painful feeling of humiliation or distress caused by the consciousness of wrong or foolish behavior. I'm sure all of us in this room have, have maybe at one point in time ever dealt with shame. A lot of times we've probably done something, maybe it was not very big at all, but we did it and we just felt shame. Shame, a lot of times, will try to exclude us from a situation. It'll try to exclude us from people that can help. It'll try to isolate us. And this is a lot of times what shame sounds like. I'm not good enough. I'm messed up. No one can forgive me for what I've done. If only I had done this. And I remember I've, I had a moment that when we were traveling full-time on the road, we were missionaries for five years, and a lot of it was traveling, none of it by airplane. We were always driving everywhere. And so, uh, you know, when you're driving 12 hours a day, you know, sometimes, like, you get, you get really confident in your driving ability, sometimes a little too confident in your driving ability. But we, I remember we were in Tulsa. We just went to lunch right after church, and I was driving, and there's, like, probably five other people. It was, it was a full vehicle. And so we go, to, we go to lunch, we eat, and then we come out, we all get in the car, and we're about to, I'm about to back out of the restaurant, and yeah, it was a really congested parking lot. I mean, if you know where, you know, Olive Garden, you know, nothing against Olive Garden, but just get better parking lots. Um, so we all piled in, and we cranked up the music, you know, like, we're young, we're, and it was Hillsong too, so it wasn't like we were cranking up, like, Def Leppard or something like that, but we were cranking up that praise and worship music, and I back up, and one of my buddies like, whoa, 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 and then all of a sudden, I just hear it, you know, you hear just that noise that no one wants to hear when they're in a car, just that crushing of plastic and metal and all this kind of stuff. And, like, it just hit me. I was like, oh, I just did that. And it was even worse because that's the first time that I've ever hit a vehicle. And so I back up, and it was even worse because I pulled forward after I backed up. Maybe not the best thing to do. Uh, and we even had a gooseneck trailer hitch on the back of the, tr uh, on the, back of the truck. And it went underneath the wheel well of the person's car, and whenever I pulled forward, it just yanked it enough. And so it was literally like a bump that turned into a lump that turned into a stump, and I'm like, I'm going to die, all this kind of stuff. And so I back up, and we all get out of the car, and, you know, everyone's like, oh, bummer, man, like that stinks. And I'm like, yeah, it really does. But I remember in that moment, it was a funny situation, but I felt shame because I'm standing there looking at this, and I'm like, I caused this. This wouldn't have happened if I didn't get behind the wheel of this car. Like, I'm the reason why we're even in this situation. And then I remember just from that moment forward, if I even saw someone who was with me the day that the incident happened, I wouldn't want to talk to them very much. Like, I wouldn't, I would want, there was that isolation that I was feeling on the inside of something like you messed up and they were there to see you mess up. And so it was just that amount of shame that I felt. And whenever I was reading this yesterday and just seeing how we literally don't hear anything about Peter from the moment he denies Christ to the moment he was raised from the dead, we know that Peter literally went and shut himself away and just cried. Because he's thinking, I've betrayed the one that I love. And sometimes it's easy to feel like that. But, there's always a but. After the resurrection, Jesus appeared to them. But this is after the initial appearing. Jesus appeared to his disciples many other times before he ascended to heaven. And that's what I love. Like, Jesus is just like, what's up? I'm here. See ya. You know, like, you never knew when he was going to show up. So I'm sure the disciples from that moment forward are kind of like, make sure you're doing the right thing because you never know. Jesus could just walk in, which we should live that way. Just in, in, anyway. But the disciples were out and they were fishing because, once again, like that, that was their, you know, that was their career. That's what they knew how to do. So they're out fishing. And they couldn't catch any fish. And this had actually happened many chapters <laughs> later, or many chapters earlier, where they're fishing, they can't catch anything. And then there's this guy on the shore. He's got, a little, he's got a little campfire set, and he's just doing his deal. And he looks at them, and he can tell they're frustrated. He can tell they're not catching anything. And he's like, hey, guys, why don't you cast your net to the other side? I can imagine in that moment, some of them are like, wait a second. I, this sounds familiar. So they cast their nets on the other side. You can guess what happened. They got an overwhelming abundance of fish. And then they realized who the person on the shore was. It was Jesus. And so they come over and are like, yeah, we're going to kick it with Jesus. We just got a whole bunch of fish. Haven't even had breakfast yet. Let's come. Let's eat. Let's enjoy. And so they come and they sit around the fire. And then Jesus, this is probably one of the first real intimate moments Jesus has with Peter after he was resurrected. Was he, he literally looks at Peter 
And they just begin, I, I, I can imagine they just start having just this little casual conversation. Just about like, man, isn't the weather great? Good fish out there. Like, this is awesome. But then Jesus looks at Peter and he asks this question. He says, Peter, do you love me? To which Peter responds, yeah, absolutely. And then Jesus said, then feed my sheep. So then Peter, I'm sure he like, he's like, awesome. Good deal. Done. But then Jesus comes at him again. He's like, Peter, do you love me? Peter looks back at him. He's like, yeah, yeah, I love you. I, I, we just had this, having a little deja vu right now. And he's like, then feed my sheep. And then it says one last time, Jesus looks at him and he's like, do you love me? <laughs> and then it even says in the Bible that Peter, he's like a little, at this point, he's a little, you know, into, or he's just frustrated now because he's like, bro, we just went through this two times. And Peter looks back at him and he's like, yes, I love you. And Jesus said, feed my sheep. How many times did Jesus ask Peter, do you love me? How many times did Peter deny Christ? Three times. For every mistake that you make, for every time you feel like you've messed up, for every time you feel like you can never measure up to how good God wants you to be, he's literally right there next to you saying, hey, do you love me? Because I love you. And it shows on the cross. You know, the cross was never, never caught Peter by surprise. Like we read earlier in the scripture, we see that Jesus was preparing Peter for that moment. But because Peter allowed himself to be led by his emotions, it took him to a place of shame where he withdrew and literally wasn't even at the cross to see Jesus crucified. The shame was so unbearable, he couldn't stand to even see Jesus another day. He felt so unworthy. But I just want to let you know right now, no matter how many times you've denied Christ, he's always standing there right behind your denial saying, I love you. And I believe you. I believe in you. You know, I have a scripture that goes with that. It's uh, Titus 1, verse 16. It says... They claim to know God, but they deny God by the things that they do. We deny God by the things that we do, not necessarily like Peter, uh, you know, across the courtyard, but it's the same, same thing. So last one, and uh, I know we're starting to get close in time, but um, was the ascension. Why was the ascension so important? Well, the, the cool meter is about ready to, to go up right now. Um, and for the record, I do have my notes on my phone, but for those peeps out there who understand what bifocals are, I printed my notes. Oh. So it's going to be a lot quicker if I just kind of highlight a few things <laughs> that God gave me about the ascension. So stick with me just for, just for a minute. But what is the ascension? Forty days after today, after Jesus re re resurrected, there was an ascension. There was another celebration. So the party's not over. Who likes to celebrate your birthday all month? Or even 40 days after, we're still celebrating. And you keep having those birthdays because statistics show those who have birthdays actually live longer. So keep having those birthdays, all right? So what, for, to a Christian, what is the ascension all about? We have creeds and confessionals that say, He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. When we really understand what the ascension is, it is an irreplaceable message and purpose of our Christianity. No other religion can say that their leader died, or they can say they died, but they can't say they were resurrected and they ascended into heaven. Now, Jesus ascended in front of all of his peeps, in front of all of his disciples, to which they, they basically responded by just going out and going back to Jerusalem it says in Luke 24, and he led them out as far as Bethany and lifted up his hands and blessed them. And while he was blessing them, he left them and was carried up into heaven. After worshiping him, they returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And they, they were just joyful. They're, the ascension is only in two places in the Gospels. It's in Mark and in Luke. So that kind of shows me the, the focus is not necessarily on the ascension. However, if, if it would happen today, all those disciples would be, would be doing the talk, so, the talk show circuits, saying, I was there, let me tell you about it. It was amazing. But it was more on the fact that they went out and they did the works of Jesus. They went out and worked on Jesus' behalf. So, yes, he has descended, uh, ascended. What are we doing now? Our job now is like the disciples to go out and to continue the work that he did. And the ascension has many different uh, purposes, but one of the things is the giving of the Holy Spirit. Jesus told his disciples, I'm only one person. If I stay here on this earth, 
then the, then, then the Spirit of God can't come down. See, when Jesus was here, only he could only be one place at one time, even though it was, you know, after, after the resurrection, it was a surprise, here he comes, there he goes. But after the ascension, then he could be with all of us. The Holy Spirit came down in fullness to fulfill the plan of God on this earth that was started back in the Garden of Eden, the walking and the talking with, with his people. So the ascension is, is, like, is like when we give our lives to Jesus, it's, it's, it, and for, first we, we, we say yes to Jesus, we accept him into our heart, but that's an inward that's an inward decision. You can't really see somebody giving their heart to Jesus. But the second step to that is the baptism in water, which we're going to be doing that. We're going to talk about that in a few weeks. But when you go through the baptism of water, that is like you're representing the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. So wait a minute. We're talking now about ascension. Where does that come into play? Well, if Jesus didn't ascend into heaven, he had two options. He could still be walking around here today. Oh, my word, he would have had to go through all those fads, all those fashions, all those history, all the different cultures, just to be here today. And people would be like, whoa, this guy's been here for over 2,000 years. That's not going to happen, right? And the second option is to die again and to be buried. And that's not an option either because he's God-man. And so the same way that we're going to go and ascend Jesus ascended, and at the very end, and I'll close with this, John 14, verse 2 says, In my Father's house, this is Jesus telling his disciples, In my Father's house are many dwelling places, many houses. If not, I would have told you, I am going away to prepare a place for you. If I go away and prepare a place for you, I will come back. That's what this whole deal is about. Jesus is coming back so that where I am, you may be also. So it's the death, the burial, the resurrection, and the ascension that we celebrate as Christians. And Jesus is at the right hand of the Father right now interceding for you and for me. Because the enemy used to be up there. The, the enemy used to say, hey, you know what Nicole did? She has no place in heaven. She's not worthy. She can't come up into this place. She has sin in her life. You know that we are all, we all started in sin. We are all sin, right? We had sin. We need a Savior. Savior. We are not sinless, but we should be sinless. We should sin less. We can go to God, the Father, through Jesus, who's at the throne of God, ready to remit, like Becca said, and Phil said, and Zach said, ready to get rid of those sins. Heaven is not full of good people. Heaven is full of forgiven people. Thanks so much for listening. If you would like to support this ministry financially, you can do so at visionnwa.com forward slash give. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast available on iTunes and SoundCloud. Vision Church, vision for life.